0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's been a good weekend. Randy and I want to uh, thank you for having us, hosting us, and uh, we've had a good time, great time with you. And uh, we trust that you've been uh, blessed by both your fellowship with each other, uh, by the ministry of the word we've shared together and uh, by the hockey that you've enjoyed playing one with the other too. I was thinking as we were uh, singing there this morning that what the uh, enemy fears the most, what the devil fears the most in the church... And I think actually what our, the enemies of Christ and our culture fear the most is men who will serve and love God. Men who are truly committed to Christ and to his word are a terror to the enemy. And there will be no uh, turnaround for the life of the church in our day. There will be no revival in the church unless he begins with us as men, as heads of our homes, as leaders in our families, our marriages, our churches. Uh, It's through God's men that, uh, as Elijah's 7,000 that Elijah was reminded about, uh, who have not bowed the knee to Baal, that things will be changed in our time. Before I begin this morning, let me just uh, give you a couple of uh, quick reminders. First of all, if you would like to receive Jubilee, I know lots of you have picked them up. If you want to receive this to your door, free in the mail, so if you're Dutch or Scottish, that will appeal especially, um, (laughs) then uh, I'm a bit of both actually my mother's Scottish my dad's Dutch so uh, that should appeal to you as it does to me Uh, then you just sign up you can either sign up online or if it's easier there is a clipboard there just on the table sign up for that Um, I want to remind you all about our uh, the churches that are represented here as well about the Safe Families program this is a real practical way in which we can do what we've actually been talking about this weekend uh, providing uh, Safe environments for short-term care for vulnerable children. Uh, I would encourage you to talk to your leaders, elders, pastors about whether uh, you can become part of the Safe Families vision. In order to become to become a Safe Family, the church needs to be your churches need to be behind it, uh, or at least have become a Safe Families church, and that means that then there would be referrals. There's going to be many, many issues in the Barry area. Many of which you're per- perhaps not aware of, uh, where there is crisis in people's lives, and a single mum needs care for her child for three or four days in a Christian home here or there. This is what Safe Families is all about. So I'd encourage you to look at that, and don't forget, you dads or grandfathers, if you've got a student, uh, if you want, if one of your kids is in university studying. Uh, in the areas of theology or politics, medicine, uh, mechanics, media, arts, business, whatever, and they would benefit from a week of intensive biblical worldview training in the challenging environment that they're in, pick up one of these, and uh, they may well be able to get a full scholarship to be part of uh, that program. So I just wanted to remind you of those things. And as Randy said, if you would like to be one of the 100 men that we're looking for this year to stand with us as an institute... Uh, to pray with us and to support us, Uh, you can just go onto our website and sign up to help us online. Just a small amount every month, 100 men this year would make all the difference to us as a ministry. Don't let it take away from your church commitments, but if it's something you can do over and above from what God is already asking you to do, then we'd love if you would help us with that if you've been blessed by what you've heard this week. Psalm 132 is where we're going first this morning. Psalm 132. And then we're going to return to Matthew chapter 5, Uh, Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place. For the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Nephratha. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon him himself his crown shall flourish i'm going to be referring back to that text in a moment now let's turn to matthew chapter 5 let's be reminded as we begin this morning that christ the greater moses has gone up onto the mountain and he sat his disciples down and he is teaching them and interpreting the law for them he is putting the law into full force in his teaching and I'm going to read now Matthew 5:33 through 37 which deals with truth and oaths. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not swear falsely but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you do not swear at all neither by heaven for it is God's throne nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus is now expounding to us the third commandment which is do not misuse the name of the Lord your God which is closely related in his application here to the ninth commandment you shall not bear false testimony you shall not bear false witness both of these commandments remind us of a number of things the first thing that we're reminded of is God's holiness god's holiness we've been singing about it we've been reminded about it already this morning the psalmist says in psalm 51 6 you desire truth in the inward parts so we're reminded of the holiness of god second of all we're reminded of human fallenness and ignorance we're reminded of our own rebellion against the law of god when we start to consider truth in the inward parts and our words how we speak that of course brings us to the reality of our need for atonement that is to say that in this area all of us have sinned and do sin against the lord there is none righteous no not even one says the apostle paul the great uh, anglican commentator jc ryle he says this ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so many do not value the gospel and content themselves with a little formal Christianity. They do not see the holiness of God's commandments. If they did, they would never rest till they were safe in Christ. So it reminds us whenever we come to the law of God that we need his atonement. And fourthly, we're reminded of the call we have to obedience. Jesus shows us the importance here of avoiding all occasions of sin. And uh, J.C. Ryle, again, in view of this commandment about the misuse of oaths, he says, "...the Lord Jesus forbids all vain and light swearing altogether, all swearing by created things even when God's name is not mentioned, all calling upon God to witness except in the most solemn occasions is a great sin." So what Jesus is doing here in this section of his exposition of the law is to remind us of the intent, the spirit of the law with respect to honoring the name of God in our lives. And I want to unpack that for us this morning. Speaking the truth, not bearing false witness, and being men of our word. When I was growing up in England, we lived in a little uh, market town just outside of Bath, the great Roman city. It was called Bath because it was the the place where the Romans had built many beautiful Roman baths. (laughs) So they called this the city Bath. It was a beautiful city uh, made of limestone. Uh, and uh, I think actually the area is, is close to the Mendip Hills there where they cut the limestone. But we lived in a, in a, in a small town just outside of Bath called Devizes. Uh, quite a notorious town I discovered once in reading John Wesley's uh, journals because uh, the ministers... Uh, the clergy of devises during the years of the Great Awakening chased John Wesley out of the town with dogs. So um, a spiritual lot. Anyway, the, uh, there was a statue in the center. It was a market town. And there was a, just outside the market, the large market, which is in the center of the Britucks in this area of the town, There was a statue in the center of the town that marked a very important moment in the town's history when somebody had come out of the market and took a blasphemous oath with respect to their business transaction that they had just conducted. And they said, God, strike me dead if I am lying. And they were struck dead on the spot. And this event was so burned into the minds of the townsfolk that they put up a statue of this individual to commemorate the moment right outside the marketplace. And it was a reminder to me that our words matter. Words are not a minor or a light thing. Truth and lies are words How we speak to God, how we speak to each other, how we speak to our families, how we speak to those with whom we work and so forth is not a trivial thing. Perjury in scripture is not a minor infraction. You'll remember the account of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, where in Acts chapter 5 there in verses 1 through 10, we won't read it for time's sake, but Ananias and Sapphira are both struck dead by God, for colluding in a lie to the apostles, and actually the apostles say by this to the Holy Spirit, with respect to what they've done with their property. Now, it's very interesting when you read the passage, you will notice that this passage that is often used, uh, Acts 4 and 5, to justify some kind of Christian socialism, this passage actually destroys the idea of socialism completely. Because what the apostles say is, was this property not your own to do with as you will? And when you had sold it, was not the money yours to do with as you will? You could have done whatever you wanted with it. That wasn't, this is, that's not the issue. The issue is is that you've pretended, you've lied to God and said we've given all to God, when in fact you've done no such thing. And it was, the, it was the perjury to the apostles, who were, of course, the critical witnesses and representatives of revelation, of God's revelation to his church at that time, that this was seen as such a serious matter. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were judged for it. It reminds us that false witness is a serious matter in the Bible, that how we speak, speaking the truth, our oaths, is critical. Now... A tiny bit of self-examination, I'm sure, on all of our parts, uh, brings to mind the fact that we all stumble in this area. We need God's help, and we live in a time and in a culture where words don't mean much. Words are cheap, promises are cheap. But Jesus says, since you and I cannot even determine the time when our hair goes gray, I remember when I first noticed gray hair coming on my head, I was a bit shocked. It was shortly after the birth of my first child. And uh, it doesn't look too bad right now, but if I keep it short, it doesn't look so, doesn't look so white. It's coming in slowly. And uh, Jesus says, you cannot determine the time you can't even turn one of your hairs white or black. Now you can, you can wash some dye into there, but you cannot change even the color of the hair on your head. How can you make oaths and swear by heaven and earth and by God as though you can fulfill any of those things? We invite, Jesus says, God's judgment, by taking oaths lightly. It is not a, a, mere, a light business to swear by heaven or by earth or by God, since we cannot change, even when our hair goes gray. Heaven and earth belongs to the Lord. it's governed by Him. And therefore Jesus says, our words are critical." And He says, "This is the meaning of the third and ninth Commandments. This is their intent. So, let's look at it. To understand the significance, then, of what Jesus says, we have to see his reference to oaths and truth-speaking covenantally. It's absolutely true that today, for many people, oaths are meaningless. That's both in terms of profanity. When we think about false swearing, people just think about uh, vulgarity and... and, uh, and uh, uh, swear words today, but this, is the, the, this commandment has much more in mind than that. It may be profanity, or it may be the swearing of the president into office. Oaths cannot be taken lightly, and the reason oaths are taken so lightly today is, A, the de-Christianization of our culture, and B, the atomization of our culture, which is radical individualism. We don't usually think now in terms of community, and relationship and covenant we think purely individually about we tend to think purely individually about the significance of our words godly oaths however were once basic to community life because they involve the covenant of god where god required it and the blessings and cursings of deuteronomy 27 and 28 are actually covenantal. They are invoked for obedience and disobedience. I would encourage you guys at some point, uh, maybe this week, while it's still fresh in your minds, to go and read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. I'm going to comment a bit further in a moment on the significance of those passages in our own history in, in North America. And reflect on the covenantal character of God's Agreement with his people for obedience and disobedience. In antiquity, you see, all law was covenantal between men and their God or their gods. Uh, one American theologian has put it this way. He says, the oath is thus a self-invoked covenant curse. The oath assumed blood, the blood of the covenant and a life and death tie. Sometimes blood was shed whenever an oath was taken. This was the reality of uh, of life in antiquity, and actually uh, well into the medieval period. I don't know if you're a fan of Westerns, but um, my favorite Western, I think, probably of all time, is Clint Eastwood's Josie Wales' The Outlaw. Whether You've seen that uh, film. It's an absolute classic. Uh, And... um, one of the interesting things you see in that film is the depiction of the nature of blood oaths when he goes to make a pact with the comanches as they move into an area where the comanches are uh living and uh, they're setting up a, a ranch there he goes and makes a blood covenant and they use this practice of cutting the hand and then grasping one another's hand and mingling one another's blood that was the basis of all of that that's not just made up the basis of all of that was blood covenant that is that there are sanctions there are curses and blessings for either faithfulness to the oath or faithlessness to the oath he says words of life in that film he says my words of life my words of death now that actually reflects what has been true throughout most of human history an understanding of covenant uh, one of the things about the Christian gospel as we proclaim it into our society that's been steadily de is that people find the idea of blood atonement, of blood covenant, which is the essence of the gospel, is a very strange thing because we've lost the covenantal character of the Western world in recent years. It's kind of uh, started to evaporate from our thinking, but... If you look at antiquity, if you look at the history of the Western world, you will see that covenants and oaths are absolutely central to every aspect of life. And very often they were confirmed by blood, by some symbol. The Arabs dipped their hands in the blood of a camel on taking an oath. Many cultures, in fact... uh, Even the Celts were doing this for some time, right into the uh, before the before Christianity came into Scotland. They would drink blood, which involved religiously communion with their god. And actually, what you see in all of this is that the the uh, concept of covenant is basic to human life. It's an inescapable concept. It's there throughout history. And as Christians, we celebrate God's covenant oath with us by eating and drinking symbolically the blood and bread of the covenant. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ, we drink symbolically the blood of the covenant because it is an oath. It is a covenant agreement that carries with it blessings and cursings. That's the nature of the covenant. It's not a light thing. Actually, when we begin to see the Christian faith covenantally and we see it biblically, this is why we talked yesterday a bit about the temple and the tabernacle and the nature of those sacrifices. This is all covenantal relationship. And in those agreements, in that covenant that Christ has cut with us, oath is involved. In our reading from Psalm 132, we see both David and God swear an oath concerning the covenant of salvation. David is swearing an oath that he's gonna, he is going to build that place, he's going to provide that place for God's sanctuary. And actually, he does start to gather all the materials for the temple, but it's Solomon, his son, who builds the temple in the end. God swears that it will be David's descendant who will sit and rule forever on the throne which is Christ the covenantal character of godly oaths is found in Hebrews chapter 6 just turn there with me I want to read this to you Hebrews chapter 6 verses 6 through 20 Hebrews 6 verse uh, let's read actually from verse 4 verse 4 sorry sorry Hebrews 6, 16 through 20, not verse 4, 16 through 20. I'm going to read from verse 13, actually. Here we go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying... Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath... That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters... The presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a fantastic statement about the nature of the surety and immutability of the covenant oath God has made with us tells us about the character of covenant and oath-taking, oath-making. God, you see, in, in making an oath, the idea, of course, is that we're saying our word is established based on someone greater or something greater than ourselves. God cannot swear by anybody greater than himself, so he swears by himself, and so he, the writer says two immutable things, his oath and his character. Now I want you to think about that in terms of your salvation today, how unshakable it is, is—the what's called the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath. That the Lord Jesus Christ has gone in behind the veil, that's the image from the temple, that is he's gone in as our high priest, there he makes atonement for our sins, and that is an immutable Covenant. It's unbreakable, it's sure in every part. He says, that's our anchor. That's our surety. That is our security. God's covenantal character then means that God is oath-bound. And I want to take you to one other passage to uh, show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 And I'm going to read verse 27 through 32. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. I referred in passing without reading it to this passage yesterday. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many many sleep or have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world." Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, and so on and so forth. Paul gives his instructions about communion. What he does there is he shows the covenantal character, the oath-bound character of our relationship with Christ, that our words... The motions of our hearts, our intentions before the Lord, that we are to examine, to judge ourselves because of the oath, because of the covenant that we have before the Lord. Our covenant is that we will honor the covenant meal, the sign of our relationship with God, come with true hearts in repentance and faith. And God does punish, as we see there, false oath-taking. Exodus 20, verse 7, God says, He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And that's why this is an application of the third commandment. That we actually take the Lord's name in vain when we misuse oaths. When we do not speak the truth. So given this basic background Dave, uh, about oath-taking, and you'll notice that in Psalm 132, David's oath is not condemned. What is Jesus actually doing when he makes this statement in Matthew chapter 5? It's obvious from the rest of Scripture that Jesus is not condemning all oaths here, But he's condemning the casual use of oaths. So it wasn't an absolute prohibition, but it was a ban on non-covenantal—that's personal, purely personal—uses of oaths. Those are oaths that are used merely to back up our own words to convince people of something, not oaths that have been established by God in terms of His word and in terms of His covenant. Now this has been clearly understood in the church's interpretation of Jesus' words down through the centuries. I'm not saying anything new here. Jesus was forbidding a misreading of his law. He wasn't banning people making covenant promises, taking true oaths in a covenantal situation. So in the 39 articles of religion of the Church of England, we read, As we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden, Christian men, by our Lord Jesus Christ and James his apostle, so we judge that the Christian religion doth not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requires it, in a cause of faith and charity, so it be done according to the prophet's teaching, in justice, judgment, and truth. Or take the Westminster Confession, chapter 22, under the heading of oaths, lawful oaths and vows, We have a full statement of lawful oaths citing the various Old and New Testament passages. Uh, A promissory oath before God in circumstances was clearly seen as legitimate in certain particular circumstances. So, to oath was to involve the covenant God and his law by his authority. And actually we see this throughout the Western legal tradition. When you go into a court of law today in in Canada or in the United Kingdom or in the United States and you're asked to witness, what are you required to do? Put your hand on the Bible and swear an oath on the Bible. In fact, in the United States for a very long time, if you were unwilling or unable, because of irreligion, not to swear an oath upon Scripture, you were not allowed to be a witness Because you were incapable of swearing an oath to someone greater than yourself. You were making yourself uh, essentially the standard of all truth in the universe. So what the oaths of office mean in fact whether we as individuals are swearing on the Bible or whether a president's doing it or a queen is doing it in terms of the oath of office what we are invoking is a covenant and actually if you read the text of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth it is very clear, actually I cite this in my new book that she makes a covenantal oath to uphold the law of God and the gospel of God throughout the realm She makes a promissory oath to do so. The U.S. Constitution requires an oath of office. The president just got sworn in again in the United States. What does he do it on? The Bible. Is it uh, one of the former famous president's Bibles that they actually use, I think? Which one? Does anybody remember? Lincoln's Bible. He puts his hand on it. Now, it used to be the case... That the presidential oath of office in the United States was taken on an open Bible. Do you know where it was open to? Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And the president put his hand on the Bible and swore an oath before God making a national covenant with God. The British Parliament did that in the Solemn League and Covenant back in the Puritan Age. They made a covenant with God for the nation of England. The oath then is still required in our public uh, ceremonies where we recognize the responsibility that people have before God. Now, it may well be meaningless to the men who make the oaths today. It may well be seen as cheap for many of even of the ministers presiding at the uh, coronation of the queen. How much true faith was there? I don't know how much faith is there true belief in the god of the bible in obama who places his hand on the bible to take an oath of office and then proceeds to speak about uh, homosexual marriage and abortion and so forth and climate change and every leftist agenda you can possibly think of that's in contrast and contradiction to the word of god it's actually blasphemy To take an oath on God's word in such a context and have no intention of fulfilling it is blasphemous. It's cheapened. Now we think, well, okay, well, they don't mean it. Yes, but does that mean God does not pay attention? Do you think that because today in the United States or in England the covenant oaths that have been made are not taken seriously by those that have made them, do you think God does not take it seriously? I mean, if you have invoked year after year in presidential inaugurations, blessings and cursings from the Bible upon your nation for obedience and disobedience, do you think God's forgotten? Does he say, you know what? My memory's a bit hazy on that one. Uh, Yeah, It's kind of slipped my mind. That's not the way God is. And if we want to look for reasons why our nations are in the economic state that they are, why our social order is in the state that it is, why we have the encroachment of Islamization in our countries and so forth, I don't think we have to look any further than the blasphemous oath-taking and invoking of God's judgment that we have been involved in as corporate peoples, as nations in the last 50 to 100 years or so. Our lives, you see, are actually a series of covenant oaths. If you're a Christian, you got baptized. That's a covenant act. It's a sign of the covenant. It's a seal of the covenant. Many of you are married. What did you do when you got married? Do you remember the oath that you took? The covenant agreement that you made? And then communion. On a weekly or monthly or whatever it is basis, however your church practices it. Because life is covenantal, our lives are marked by covenant agreements. When we bring our children before the Lord and dedicate them to God, we're making a covenant with God. And we often ask the church to participate in that covenant. That we would raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So if you actually look at your life you will see that it involves a series of covenants. Maybe you sign the lifestyle agreement to be part of the, the, uh, uh, the Christian ministry that you're involved with. Or maybe in your workplace you sign some kind of contractual agreement. We are making covenants the whole time. Agreements. Now the third and ninth commandments are actually about speech. One refers to God the third commandment, the other refers to men, the ninth commandment. And I want you to think about speech for a moment. A speech is a God-given power. We're the only creatures on the earth capable of articulate speech. We, at, we can communicate our thoughts in great detail through speech. God speaks when he Caused the universe into existence he didn't just think it it doesn't say and god imagined and it was christ is described as the word god spoke we're his image bearers we speak and because of this third and ninth commandment the hebrews were usually scrupulous about oath keeping so, Jesus' essential point here is to remind us that all our, in all our speech, we're to be mindful of God and mindful of His holiness and should never trivialize them because when we speak, whenever we speak, we are in the presence of God. There is never a moment when we are speaking that we are outside of God's presence. You never speak in secret with respect to God. We're always in the presence of God. And so although the Jews were cautious about God's name for fear of blasphemy, the, the, the third commandment, in fact, they often feared to pronounce the name Yahweh. They even abbreviated it, as you know, in their writing, lest they uh, use it sinfully. Even though they had that respect for God's name, they made loose vows. And this is the content of the context and the content of what Jesus is referring to to in Matthew 5 is that you have a religious environment when people realize the seriousness of using God's name in oaths. So what they did instead to get around that problem was they substituted God's name for something else like heaven or earth or Jerusalem or by their head. Or whatever they recognize that they shouldn't misuse god's name so they just use something else instead in loose oath taking now clearly it's only loose oath taking because the jews were required to make various oaths in different contexts that god sanctioned so god isn't jesus is not addressing those things as we've seen so what was happening is there were clever exponents of the law these scribes and pharisees who've been making their fence for the law we've talked a bit about that And they regarded oaths and they taught that oaths could be less binding depending on the exact nature of the phrasing that you used in making an oath. Right, so in other words, there were loopholes. This is what Jesus is addressing. Loopholes in agreements, in speech, in oath-taking that created a kind of... uh, A dishonesty, a dishonest culture where men would loosely swear by this, that, and the other, scrupulously avoiding the name of God, and depending on the exact phrasing of it, would therefore not regard it as binding. I don't know whether you remember in the playground growing up, this was certainly the reality in my upbringing Every kid in the school was always taking oaths it 's part of something i don 't know what it is about gr- uh, kids about growing up. They were always swearing on their mother 's grave and swearing on their their father 's life or swearing on their lives and then if they had their fingers crossed behind their backs, you know they thought that that didn 't count you know it, it 's this funny thing about oath taking this strange thing that we do as we grow up that there was in this having your fingers crossed was a recognition that you shouldn't make a false oath and yet you're calling your 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 mother's grave is involved and your life's involved and god himself is involved well jesus tells us don't make any such rash oaths by heaven or by our head or by the earth or by anything in it he says look Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Speak the truth. Have integrity. Follow through on your promises. Don't claim that you can invoke heaven and earth and God's creation to your... You cannot change one. Care on your head. Just speak the truth. Integrity. So non-covenantal rash oath-taking, when you think about it, is only needed by those whose word is insufficient. Men are calling down oaths on themselves when they're actually men whose reputation states that their word can't be trusted. If your word, if you're a man of your word and we're men of our bond, as it were, If we speak the truth, we'll be known as men of integrity. We won't need to call down oaths upon ourselves. We won't need to back them up with other things. If we're honest, except in a legal and covenantal situation, no one will actually require that kind of vow from you anyway. Why is this significant or important for our family, for our church, and for society? Well, at the heart of the biblical requirement is that oaths and speech are to be so done before the Lord, they're to be so regarded in terms of uh, God's government and God's sovereignty over all things, that we prevent perjury and lying from characterizing life. So Jesus says, don't make oaths to try and back up your word which probably is uh, is is because really your word is not trustworthy historically let your yes be yes let your no be no and let truth characterize your life if society and our family does not move on that basis Perjury and lying start to characterize our lives. And actually, if we're honest now, we look at our world, we see that perjury has started to characterize the social order. The third and ninth commandments are actually at the heart and the foundation of the Western legal system. Did you know, for example, that historically, the perjurer who was trying to willful perjury, if you were trying to, if let's say you were perjuring yourself in a murder case, you were liable to the same penalty you were seeking to bring about upon the individual who you were trying to condemn. Now you can imagine that that kind of a principle, which is a biblical law principle, had a very uh, significant effect upon whether people were prepared to go into court and lie. And perjure themselves. Today, presidents think nothing of perjuring themselves before Congress. Bill Clinton and his famous perjury. The leaders of our nations think nothing of just perjuring themselves to other rulers of our social order. Think about it. Oaths of office, vows of marriage, business contracts, functioning courts, viable markets, ordination vows, professional agreements, lifestyle commitments, uh, uh, the... um, Commitments that a doctor makes, the Hippocratic oaths, the legal profession, and the oaths that lawyers and judges make, they all rest upon a common regard for truth and integrity, that a culture not be built upon perjury and lies, but on truth and integrity. That's the concern of Jesus' commandment. And we as Christians must be men who lead the way in this regard. In a culture of lies and in a culture of perjury, the church has to be the very beacon of the truth, of integrity, of oath-keeping. You want your business to flourish? You want to flourish as a professional man? You want to flourish in your work? Be a man of integrity because people will notice it. They will know that this man, it, it's, he is not simply out to make a buck. he's out to deal truthfully and with integrity with his customers, with his business partners. If we say, well, a little lie, a little deception here won't matter, what if everybody did the same? If everybody is saying to themselves, well, you know, a little distortion of the truth here, a little bit of false oath-taking here, a little bit of a false promise there... Stretching the truth there and so on, that won't matter. Well, if everybody does it, what happens? Well, as one social commentator has pointed out, he says, where there is no regard for truth, when men can subscribe to oaths with no intention of abiding by the terms, then social anarchy and degeneration ensue. Where there is no fear of God, then the sanctity of oaths and vows disappear and men shift the foundations of society from the truth to a lie. And I put it to you that that is actually where we are in our culture today. Perjury in the courts means nothing. Means nothing. Our economic crisis, our recent economic crisis, you think that's got to do with um, some structural problem? Uh, you know, a regulatory problem? No. It's precisely because of collective perjury people perjuring themselves to the mortgage salesperson about their income. The mortgage salespeople knowing full well that the customer is perjuring themselves and is lying, but they think nothing of it because they can perjure themselves to the bank so long as a f- there is a is two or three months' worth of payments, they will get their commission. And the banks know that this is all crap debt as well, excuse my French. And they will then perjure themselves to other uh, Uh, institutions around the world and pretend that this is good debt that this is worth buying and then you create this massive black hole of fiscal disaster and that's what happened with the subprime just one aspect of it that's essentially, I'm no economist but that's essentially what happened with the subprime crisis everybody perjuring themselves to everybody else And then you have banks manipulating base rates and you've got, and everybody is trying to make a buck by perjury. You know, there used to be a saying in England, safe as the Bank of England. (laughs) Safe as the Bank of England. You know, uh, I was reading recently that uh, I believe uh, Germany, one of the European countries, I don't want to misspeak because my memory is hazy on this has asked the U.S. uh, Treasury to return some of his gold. You read about this? Just a tiny fragment of what is supposedly gold in possession of the United States. They told him it's going to take seven years for him to get it to them. (laughs) Slow Slow boat, for sure why because they've leveraged over and over and over again that gold by inflation by fiat currency by paper printing by perjury so it's going to take them seven years before they can actually release the gold before they can untangle themselves so if you want to actually know why our economy is in a mess it's for the it's for the violation of god's word here it's perjury The markets, you see, you cannot have, I'm digressing slightly here, but it's worth it. The 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 markets cannot work. You cannot have a free market which Western prosperity was built upon. And we used to say that there were various brands or various stamps that meant something. You knew that the stamp represented quality. You knew that the company or the, you know, I bought in some years ago to, um, to, a, to a pension scheme with supposedly the most reliable, trustworthy, historic institution providing pensions in the United Kingdom, Equitable Life, sold to me by a Christian, put about 10,000 pounds in there, about $17,000, something like that, and uh, within a few years, Equitable Life's gone belly up. By the skin of my teeth, I get back what I had originally put in. Many people were nowhere near so fortunate, and they lost everything. 40 years of savings gone like that through perjury. People's lives ruined by perjury. The market, the free market cannot work on the basis of perjury. And the problem in the West today is that from top to bottom, as the Christian faith has waned, Even market agreements, deals, true integrity is disappearing and it's creating economic crisis. Islam uh, doesn't deal with the problem. If you've ever uh, lived in an Islamic country, as my parents have, uh, one of the things that strikes you about most of the Islamic world is that it is absolutely bound up in corruption. You can't even get a phone plugged in without bribing someone. You can't get anything without a bribe. It's a culture filled with corruption and bribery. It is only the Christian faith, the reason we became prosperous, is because we believed that men could not perjure themselves before God and before each other. And that integrity and truth speaking mattered. Till we return to that, we cannot return to prosperity. A society which tolerates subversion by perjury cannot survive, nor can a church that tolerates false and faithless leaders who have sworn to defend the gospel and abandon it. We have men who take ordination vows in the mainstream denominations, I pray that it's never true of us as evangelicals, who have absolutely no intention of upholding the gospel or fulfilling their duties as ministers of God at all, and they never did have any intention of doing so. Is it any wonder why those churches are all collapsing and God is uh, destroying them, striking these churches down? Most of them today in both the UK and and Canada are nothing more than real estate boards. These denominations have become real estate boards for the sale of properties because of perjury. Because men wear the uh, insignia and address of office but they blaspheme the name of God. God cannot tolerate that. He'll judge it. False oath taking. The seriousness of the false oath is is seen in that while stealing or kidnapping are serious offenses in the Bible, you're actually only robbing one person. A false oath, however, is an attack upon the life of an entire society. So if we think, well, these are really serious sins. Stealing, kidnapping, Gosh, would never do that. But hey, what's a little lie here and there? A false oath is actually undermining the whole of society. It's an attack upon the life of a society. Society crumbles without our yes being yes and our no being no. The oaths that we have left in our culture, brothers, are a remnant of our Christian past. The removal of God from oaths a light and dishonest use of the oath is actually to declare our independence from God. To say, well, God's not bothered about my words and uh, I'm unconcerned with what God thinks about my words. Cut loose from his authority, actually, the only remaining authority is the one that is uh, put forward to us today, the omni-competent state And when men cease to be honest, what you have, what you create, is a regulatory society. You create mass regulation. Because nobody can be trusted, (laughs) men think that the only solution is to regulate everything, which leaves people hunting around for as many loopholes as they possibly can through and out of regulations. Regulations then undermine people's freedom and undermines the society and the culture. The oath is a legal recognition of God and the loss of a godly covenant oath is a denial of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go into a courtroom and you're asked, sir, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but you do so without reference to God and there's no so help me God, what you've done is you've said, man is now the, truth of source, uh, the, the source of truth and Meaning, And we can then redefine life and redefine truth in terms of our own definition. In wrapping up, let me just read to you an article that I read in the National Post a year or so ago. An extract from a book by Jesse Bering called God and Sartre, the uh, French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Whose uh, existential thinking has very much come to characterize the thinking of our day. Now, just listen to this. This is in a book called The Psychology of Souls, Destiny, and the Meaning of Life. The Belief Instinct is the title, that's the subtitle. God produces man just as the artisan, following a definition, a technique. The individual man is the realization of a certain concept in the divine intelligence. He's setting forth the Christian understanding of man-made in the image of God. This is nonsense, said Sartre. In reality, we simply come to exist as individuals just as beads of condensation form on a glass of water or spores of mold appear on old bread. And if there is no God, as Sartre believed, then metaphysical meaning... Applied to the individual's raison d'etre, as well as to life itself, is only a a mirage. We should rejoice in this divine absence, says Sartre, because now we are free to define ourselves as we please. That is to say, because God hasn't fettered any of us with a particular function in mind, selfishly obligating us to a preordained task in this fleeting existence of ours, we've no legitimate grounds to stew over our incorrigible and immovable fates. Instead, our purpose is entirely our own affair. We decide who we are, not God. Indeed, this latter point was enough to persuade Sartre that his humanistic principles would apply even if God did exist. In Being and Nothingness, which was his book, 1943, we begin to hear the unarticulated rumblings of Sartre's simple and powerful mantra existence precedes essence. This rather tidy proposition neatly turned the church on its head, capturing Sartre's explosive logic that individual human nature is a product of the human mind, not of God's. God doesn't endow each man with an essence or pre-written underlying purpose, said Sartre. Purpose is a human construct. As a humanist in his day, Sartre almost succeeded in single-handedly shooing the faithful out of their pews in the French cathedrals. Unfortunately for him, this notion of God the creator is nearly as rampant in the world today as it was when the first prophets sat down to put words in God's mouth. End quote. The temper of our age is the one that emptied the churches in France. Which is, there is no meaning or purpose or essence that it defines us that is the work of God. We define all things ourselves. In such a world, we will find a bit of value in this religion and a bit of value in this one, and we'll do a bit of pick and mix here and a pick and mix there, and we'll take this value and we'll adopt this, and we'll, the things you saw on our TDSB slide. That's the essence of the existential pagan project. The man is the source and definition of all truth and meaning and our words mean nothing. You, are, you can reinvent yourself week by week, if you will, because all these things are nothing more than a social construct. You are the creator of yourself. Now, this isn't just abstract philosophy. This is what people act upon today. This is what they believe about themselves or profess to. The modern state has therefore become politically religious This is the ultimate order, hence it is intolerant of anything other than its own humanistic dream for the world. It believes that in in a world of anarchistic existential ideas, the state is the only recourse in bringing about some form of social cohesion. I realize that over these last uh, few sessions I've said a lot to you. Um, I've unpacked. I hope certain things about God's word, about God's law, about what it means to be God's men of the mountain. I want to suggest to you that the key for us is transformation, not by revolution. This is not a call to take up arms. Although owning a rifle isn't a bad idea, it's not a call to it's not a call to take up arms. It's not a call to revolution. It's a call to regeneration. Peaceableness, the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's commandments, uncompromising obedience to God. It means that we do respect the context in which we live. We're thankful to God for at least the measure of peace and security we enjoy today. It is being undermined fast. Our freedoms are steadily evaporating because of our lawlessness. But we are grateful to God for those freedoms which we still maintain. The world's way is revolutionary intolerance. Ours is not. God has sworn an oath and he has guaranteed our redemption in Christ. Our position is immutably secure. As Christian men today, our position is immutably secure because essence does precede existence. God has a purpose. He has a meaning. He's called us out for a particular end. And that end is centered around the truth of his word and the total trustworthiness of his purpose. And our integrity before the Lord is to reflect his covenant faithfulness. Jesus says, let your yes be let yes, let your no be no. If we would be a people of integrity as the church today, if we would be truth speakers, it would be another aspect again that would draw people to the life of the gospel. Because they would see amongst us a godliness, an integrity, a righteousness, that they would know, well, there's the only place you can actually find truth and trustworthiness right there in the church. That's the only place it exists. And if I give you an an illustration from history, when Paul the Apostle tells the church in Corinth, he says, why do you go to law against your brother? Are there not men amongst you who can judge in these matters? It is better that you be defrauded than you go to law before an unbeliever with each other. He mandated the creation of Christian courts. And Christian courts were then created from the first century on. And they began to flourish and grow in the empire. The Roman courts were slow. They were unjust. It would sometimes take 30 years to get a case to be heard. They were corrupt. And when Constantine finally came to power, he looked at the church... And he didn't invent Christian courts or invent the Christian faith. He looked at the church and he said, this is the only stable element in the empire. All you bishops, your courts, you are now the judges of the Roman world. And he gave them the robes of a Roman magistrate. You know the robes of a bishop that you see in the Catholic and Anglican churches, all that regalia? The origin of that is the, they are the robes of a Roman magistrate. And bishops provided the only justice for 500 years after the fall of Rome. Because there was integrity there in the church and the world recognized it. They recognized truthfulness, covenant faithfulness, true oaths, covenantal oaths, integrity. If we would just be obedient, we will see that God's word cannot fail. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever the prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord stands forever if we want to be God's mountain men the men of his mountain let's speak the truth and live lives of integrity for the glory of God let's pray together Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your goodness, for your faithfulness. We thank you for the immutability of your covenant oath with us that you have promised and assured us by two immutable things, your oath and your own character and nature, that our salvation is assured. We thank you that we rest in that security today that you the Lord Jesus have gone inside the veil and have purchased our salvation and now in grateful obedience as we have entered into covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to obey his covenant law. We do want to be men of the mountain. Lord, we know that we need to be filled with your spirit. We need your regenerating and sanctifying work in our lives to transform us. We thank you that you have laid before us in your word the manifesto of your kingdom, You've set before us your purpose, the goal that you have for our lives, for our families and our communities, and we pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful and obedient to it. Lord, forgive us where we have misused our mouths. Forgive us where we have spoken falsely. Forgive us where we have called down oaths upon ourselves. Forgive us where we have dishonored your name in false oath-taking. We recognize our sins and failures, but we want to be men from this day forward who honor your word and covenant. We want to be men who walk with you in integrity and faithfulness for the glory of your name, that your kingdom and your life and work be extended throughout the earth with our children, with our wives. Make us faithful as fathers. Make us faithful to our covenant with our wives. Make us faithful to our agreements in our workplace. Make us honor the integrity of your table, of the covenant meal, of the covenant feast that you have given to us. And Lord, this morning as we come before you, we're mindful of all of the things we've considered together in your word this week. Lord, we're mindful of the fact that we want to be men who are able to stand before you and say that we have sought to be men of integrity. As David said, as the, as the psalmist said and declared before you, that he was a man of integrity. Despite his sins and failures, he walked as a man of integrity before you. We want to be such men. We don't want to be in the grip of the spirit of murder in our lives Father, we don't want to be in the grip of the enemy who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Lord, we want to be totally free from his grip. Lord, I just pray for my brothers this morning, wherever the enemy's reach has reached into our personal lives, has reached into our finances, our wallets, has reached into our mouths and our words, has reached into our minds and our integrity before you, has reached into our relational lives, has reached into our sex lives, has reached into our business lives. Wherever he is trying to rob, wherever he is trying to steal, wherever he is trying to bring death, I pray that today you would bring your life you would liberate us Lord from all of those things that would seek to bring us down to death that would seek to keep a hold of curses upon us we do do not want to be under your covenant curse but under your covenant blessing Lord as men release us we pray into all the blessings of your word as we stand before you today we thank you that you have treated us as sons not as slaves But you have treated us as sons, as those who are co-heirs with Christ, and as sons you discipline us. As we've read in your word this morning, that when you judge us, it is so that we might be inheritors of eternal life and not be judged with the world. We thank you for your discipline. We thank you for your rod. We thank you for your word which tells us that even a man who does not discipline his son hates his son so The Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son that he receives. We accept your chastisement. We thank you that you're treating us as sons today. We thank you for the righteousness of your covenant. Oh God, we want to walk in those covenant blessings that are ours, that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Make them real to us today in every aspect of our lives and make us truly the children of liberty. For you have said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let us walk, Father, in the law of liberty, the law of life, that we would fully walk into and receive the inheritance you have for us as free men in Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.